Jim Chapman this Wednesday morning, and at 10.30 now, we have left, right, and center. If you are just joining us, there has been a programming change in a couple of areas, uh, and it did affect left, right, and center, where it was a program that ran between 11 and noon, and now it's from 10.30 to 11.30. Our guests remain the same, though, which is great. Marion Boyd and Bob Metz, welcome. Hello again, Hello, Dan. Dan. Good to see you both. Mm-hmm. Nice to see you. Um, I want to start right off the top, because I, wa- I want to ask... Because this is still getting front page news. It is still being played in the House of Commons. Is it time for uh, Jane Stewart to resign? Is it time for her to say, I best resign. My job has been done here. You know, I'm sitting here thinking about it, and I could care less, really, one way or the other. (laughs) Really? Because it, it, at best it would be symbolic because nothing's changed in the government. There's no big philosophic change. There's no change in attitude. There's no change in what they think the taxpayer's money should be spent for, you know. It's going to go on under the next person. And it went on as it went on under the previous person. Do you agree with that, Marion? Well, I don't, I don't agree with it in the same way. But I would say that uh, I think it would be a bad message to the bureaucrats that fumbled this ball in the first place to have, uh, to have her resign because then someone new comes in who doesn't understand about the portfolio probably would have difficulty uh, catching up fast enough to really make the kind of changes that have to be made. You're right, it's front-page news. That's because, frankly, the news media are making it news. You, you don't think it should be? I, I think that everything that there is to find out has already been found out. I agree absolutely they should have published the lists if they had them. I think all of us ought to know whether grants have gone disproportionately to liberal writings and particularly cabinet minister's writings. I think that's something we should know. And uh, uh, I, as I understood the minister's comments, and I can't remember when, I think it was Friday, uh, that uh, that she had ordered for that to be prepared. So I don't know whether that's true or not. Does... It, well, as it leaks out or becomes more news that they misled uh, the Canadians about when they found, the, you know, the timing of this and when it was announced, and uh, does that not concern you? That I don't believe they misled, and and anybody who's ever been in government knows that an auditor's report comes in to the staff of a ministry, they have an opportunity to re- prepare their reply. Because sometimes the auditors take the wrong slant. I mean, I can think of instances when we were in government that when the ministry replied, the auditors said, we didn't understand that piece of policy when we made the decisions, and there are some revisions that are made. That's the point at which it usually goes to a minister. The minister may then, you know, order other changes and say, hey, your response isn't good enough for me, which Stewart claims is the case Mm -hmm. in in this instance. And then, um, and then at, at some point, when, when you've got your ducks in, in line, in terms of how you're going to deal with the criticism, you release it. It's the same in, 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 in Ontario. When the auditor's report comes out, there already has been a great deal of internal discussion before there's political discussion, before it's released. And that's, that's what really happens. Bob, I'm surprised with your... Um you response. Know, I'm, I'm, this whole thing is reminiscent of of a of an episode of Yes Minister. I don't know if you ever watched that show, that British comedy about how the the House of uh, the Parliament operates in England, and and the constant uh, going back and forth between the elected politicians and the bureaucracy, and how they try to outmaneuver each other. Uh, if if we think for a minute that the elected officials, the people we elect, and the people in cabinet have as much control over how the system operates. Um, as we think they do, I think we're, we're fooling ourselves. It's the bureaucrats and the people behind the scenes 
that are doing all the maneuvering and operating on, on policy set out to them. It's all written in stone, basically. And, and we can always point at one person and pick a, an individual as responsible for this and that when the whole system is doing it in every department going. I mean, 90% 90, 90 of what government spends is, is, is illegitimate for government in the first place, so you're bound to get in trouble. <laughs> See, government, Do I you think... you really believe that? Absolutely. Oh, Bob, the only thing that government Bob. can offer that a private industry cannot is... Like, when, when somebody asks me, what is a government service, I say, you get... There's three services government can possibly offer. They can either shoot you, they can lock you up, or they can take your money. That's the only thing a government can do that no one, no one of us can do or no one else can do. So, generally... In order to to run any of their programs, they exercise a third option. They take our money, and if we and if we don't want to give our money for something we don't believe in, well, then they'll come for the second one. They'll lock us up. If we don't go for that, they'll shoot us. Believe me, that'll happen. And that's basically what we're looking at when we look at a government-run economy. We're looking at a at an economy run by forced spending, taxation, bureaucracy. And, and that's the total opposite of which the direction we should be going. Well, you know, it's really interesting, Bob. You know what the administration really of interesting. only takes 4% of the budget? It's really interesting that you have this one tune that you sing all the time. And obviously the people who elect governments in this don't country do not agree. Here? No, actually I don't. You sing more I than actually one? don't. So you contradict yourself. Is that what you're telling me? I, I, I look at the circumstances and make a judgment. I don't so have do I. a blanket situation where everything government does is wrong. Everything, I say everything government uh, does is wrong. I say everything government does outside the administration of justice is wrong. That's uh, what government is for. It's an instrument of force. And when we use government to do well, anything, that's even what you if it's think. to help most our of us think that government think. It's is, it, Most of us think that government is there to try and provide the the services that the electorate asks for when it elects that government I and you, if you if you think that the electorate in canada isn't asking its government to provide the services that government provides through the it pooled is. money well, of the taxes well that's what democracy is well, you haven't won this election make it right it does not make oh. it right you know people have democratically elected dictators and you could you, you would maybe sit there and argue well that was their right to do and it was okay and everything that happened after was perfectly fine Let's face no, it, people I are greedy, that. and when a politician comes along and offers them something that seems like it's for nothing, because they don't pay it at the moment they get the service, obviously the masses are going to go for something like that, because they're thinking linear, you know, in a linear sense, one, two. Oh, you, under, you underestimate the electorate uh, all the time. You, you treat the electorate as though somehow they are naive and stupid and don't people understand the issues, and that is not the money. case. It's, it's, People it's their money. It's not other people's money. No, 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 no. It, when, it's not other people's money. If it came down to, you know, to me, I think an, a politician should have to, with every promise that he goes to the public with, put the price tag beside it. Just like a car salesman has to tell you what price the car is before you buy it. They never tell us this. And I they think never tell I, us in I don't, advance. I don't disagree. That's not true that they don't tell us in advance. And secondly, I think that's true for the things that you can plan for ahead of time and that are new programs. The reality is, that there are emergencies and, and, and issues that come along with governments that they have to deal with on the spur of the moment that they can't necessarily anticipate two or three years before, the, the, before well, it arises. What are you talking about? What kind of emergency? Well, the recession that we had uh, between 1990 and 1994 is a very good example. So, so that was certainly not a predicted thing. In fact, we were being told by the previous Liberal government that Ontario's finances were in great shape that there was a, a minor downturn in the 
in the uh, economy and that it was nothing to worry about? Well, I don't regard economic up, upturns and downturns as emergencies. I regard hurricanes and tornadoes and something like well, that maybe as an emergency. Well, we certainly have had those. We certainly have had those too. Ninety percent pestilence, dealt with by pestilence and war uh, are well, are emergencies. I mean, we we know that that we certainly um, have have had all sorts of things that have arisen that governments have had to spend money Canada's on that they haven't affected. It's interesting because I'm listening to you guys and, and you both are associated with political parties. You both right. are in politics. And what's really surprising and alarming when, when I asked whether Jane Stewart should be resigned, nobody, nobody really cares. Well, I, I, I care in that I don't think that solves well, anything. What, what I'm getting, though, is that it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Accountability is not important here. She, first of all, she is wasn't, acc she wasn't accountable for what was found in that audit. She was not the minister when that audit was from, done. From what I understand and from what I've read in the paper is that she knew full well that there was problems with That's why the uh, audit was called. That, that, and she okayed. She continued to okay checks going out as she knew that there was a big problem with getting these checks cleared and where the monies were going, that there was all kinds of leaks. So you, you stop a program because you, you're looking at a part of it and you're auditing part of it? Disadvantaging in terms of, of job creation, well, some of those who, who have followed the rules and who have put in their applications? I mean, really? Well, I would, the whole problem was that there wasn't any, that people were getting money who didn't even put in applications. That's, that's the allegation. That's the allegation. That's the that's allegation. Right. That is not a proven thing so far. And you have to remember that what the audit said was there wasn't an, there wasn't an adequate paper trail. It didn't say that there was fraudulent use. They said that they needed to look more deeply into some of those things. And if there was fraudulent use, then that had to be pursued. But at this point in time, these are all allegations. And as I say, you know... What does, it, what does it say to you when you read in the paper yesterday that Jane Stewart has now hired an image consultant for herself on taxpayers' money? Well, it tells me that taxpayers and voters consultant. vote on very shallow premises. Well, and, and that they aren't looking at the deeper issue. They're looking at just the surface and, and whatever you can do marketing-wise, you can get away with. Um, to me, the whole issue of even having a department that she works in is where the crime is being committed. I mean, they, they shouldn't be distributing this money at all. This is all private money that's being taken out of the private marketplace. To me, once the money's taken from me by government, I don't care how they spend it. It's not mine anymore. It, uh, one of the things, like, one you know, things that makes about, me really cross is that nobody in London is speaking up about the very good programs that are funded through HRDC here that really... Well, maybe there's a reason uh, for that. I don't, well, I, yeah, they probably have been told by HRDC not to say anything while this is all going on. But I think, that's, that? I, think that's, I think that's wrong. Why would they tell Well, them? I don't know that, why but that would, that, that would be that? my suspicion. Mm -hmm. Because there are a lot of very fine programs that have proven outcomes that are beneficial for our community here. And, and I've, I'm frustrated that nobody's speaking up about that. You know, you can always point to a beneficial something that government does. It's easy to see the job the government creates. But what you don't see on an individual concrete basis is the jobs it destroys in order to create that one. Because the only way that the government can create the job is by taking money somewhere out of, out of the economy somewhere to give that person there, that selected person, a job, and it takes it away from those people who are in the fringes of keeping their jobs in the private market. One employer can only hire maybe one less employee that year because he's paying that much more taxes for all these beneficial programs. And 
So what happens is we see at the same time, while the government's bragging about all the wonderful things it's doing, you know, unemployment rates rising or something like this, which they aren't right now, they're dropping mm -hmm. because of cuts in taxes and the things that we should be doing that a couple parties are doing. But uh, other than that, I mean, we have to stop, you know, the tap flow where it's flowing, and that's at the spending. I think I, I would can the whole human resources department, close it tomorrow. <laughs> then I'd be happy. Then, I, then we'd have some meat to talk about here. But until as long as that department keeps running, they're taking our money. They can give it to the Eskimos or to the to, to anybody they want. It wouldn't make any difference to us. Well, I, Mary I, just, and I think that's, I think that's no. I'm not I'm not shocked at all. I I know that's your one tune that you have to sing, Bob, and you do it well, all the time. Well, sing your tune, Mary, and I want to hear what, why, I, why you think it's justifiable to to have forced spending in an economy. Like that's really the issue here. You know, you don't have to to look. At the statistics, you just have to understand the logic of what happens when you when your money is taken from you and spent on something that you wouldn't yourself choose to spend it on. That's the only reason the government has to do that, is because it knows that you're not going to spend the money where it wants you to spend it. So when the government takes money from you, spends it on something that you wouldn't spend it on, even though you might be getting some kind of peripheral benefit, um, you get less value for that money. Just well, I don't agree with you. I, th I know that the most efficient health care system, for example, is a single-payer health care system. That's where all the, the largest proportion of the money goes directly into providing the services. So you don't agree, well, you don't agree with publicly... Well, I know you think that, but that's because you don't care about the people who dentist, don't have the pay. money <laughs> to pay for that it's themselves out of their own, oh, out of their own pocket. Well, that's it's a, that's all a it's a me issue. me me kind of philosophy no, that you're always me, putting me, me forward. Philosophy, because if you really cared about the poor, you would not be supporting universality. You would support it, be, be supporting government programs that only assisted the poor and made everybody else pay for themselves. That is not true. The issue because of poverty, if, if those who have power and privilege in our society are not um, sub subjected, if you like, I wasn't going to say that, but are not are not uh, accessing exactly the same services then as as those who are are less well off See, there you are they again. will you, not you have care about the poor. they want egalitarianism they will which not is an entirely different if objective. i could finish bob but they will not, not politically support excellent services for the poor that's what's happened with privatized education all over the united states as soon as what those who have the dollars to buy education outside of the public system they are the people who have the power and the privilege in the society. Well, what does that they are you? the people. They're paying twice anyway, Mary, and you can't say that they're out of the public system. And, and meanwhile, education, education for those who are not in the higher income brackets drops in quality. And then people yeah, wonder, the why can't these people it. get jobs? Because they haven't had the appropriate education. The government is education. running an education system should be closed tomorrow. People can't read, uh, they can't write, they don't even know how to think coming out of the schools anymore. And that, that's just a fact. It, it, it's it's disgusting. It's not a fact. As a matter of fact, we have more people going to post-secondary education in this country than we ever had before. Well, yeah, we they're going to a paid institution if you want to call that education. But what their but their skills aren't what what is needed. Right? And yesterday in the paper, there's a company looking for 2,000 skilled people. They have to go outside the country to get them. In a well, I agree. In terms of of skilled trades, we have not done a good job. We're going to take a, a break. Issue. We're going to take a break. Jim's on the line. Jim, we'll get to you right after this. You're listening to Left, Right, and Center with Marion Boyd, Bob Metz. I'm Dan Gall for Jim Chapman. We'll be back after this in 1290 CJBK. Uh, so bottom line out of that whole segment was that you don't care whether she resigns or not. Well, that is not going to pr that's not going to solve anything, right? I care about the bigger picture. You know, like it concerns me that we have legislation in this country that protects ministers in a particular portfolio 
from being accountable, basically. That's why they switch them around all the time. You can't go back on them if, if they switched. Now, she kind of went into a portfolio that was already in trouble, so it sounds like uh, the last person got out, got out of the limelight, and I don't know why we're not yelling about that person. Um, you could go on on a chain of these things. Me, personally, I could complain about every one of them because I don't think what they're doing is what government should be doing. And so I would argue that they're doing harm to the economy, to, to the Canadian dollar, to Canadian prosperity, the whole shot, regardless of what they think they're doing to help. Marion? You see, I think the way you make a minister responsible is to make them be responsible for showing how they clean up a mess like this. If you let them resign and somebody else comes in who has to get up to speed and who, who, who doesn't know the ins and outs. I bet she knows more about that department now than her predecessors for a long time. Yeah, but do. at what cost, though? This is my thing where I always go back at. If, if there's a level of incompetency here, somebody should be held ac accountable. I mean, you're putting in a position to do a job. You know who if you're should not be held doing accountable the job. And who is being held accountable? The voter and taxpayer. That's where the incompetency is. Because we do not understand the nature of our governments. We, we see them in a superficial way. We think that they can just do everything that they, that they do, and we don't see all the secondary and third and fourth and fifth effects of everything that government does, especially when it strays from its main mandate, which is administration of justice and, and protection of our rights. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Rogers AT&T Cellular Network. We welcome Jim to the program. Hi, Jim. Good morning. Um, Marion made the comment that those people who private school their children do so from a power base. Now, I may not have quoted it correctly. No, I was talking about the United States, where oh. studies have shown that as, as more and more private uh, education has been, has been available, um, that you see people who have the money sending their kids to private well, education. Well, let me tell you, Marion, I'm no millionaire, and like I read yesterday on the web, President Clinton referring to all those working people under 100,000, I guess those who don't guess those over 100,000 don't work. But I was not making no 100,000. I was not no millionaire. I did not private school my children to work from a power base. I pulled my children out of the school system, public school system, to put them into a, a religious school system whose morals and values adhered to what I believed in. And I was only making about $40,000 a year, and I used the S word. I sacrificed having a new home so I could educate my children, while at the same time paying public school taxes. That was a choice that I've made. I've never whined about it. It had nothing to do about power at all. It had to do about morality and religious beliefs. And the problem is, the school that my kids went to was the cost to educate one child was 2000 per child, yet in the public school system, it's like 4700 Answer that question. Why can I educate my child in a private school and the cost was 2000 some odd per student, and yet per classroom, per student in the public school system, it's $4,700. I'm here to tell you right now, and I challenge you, Marion, that if you were to offer the average citizen a child tax credit of $5,000 per kid, they would pull their children out of the public school system like that. And you know it. Well, I don't know it, and I don't uh, think I would agree with that position. What I was talking about was the research in the United States that has shown the, the uh, erosion of the availability of quality education to the, the, those who are in, in low-income brackets across the United States. There are several very good Marianne, researches that, that have been that, done. And let me finish, Bob, please. Let me ahead, finish. Go ahead. And those studies show that as, the, as, as, as those who pull out and, and, and spend private dollars for, for education, they, 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 they begin this, this tax cut business because 
as this gentleman said, they are paying, as they think, double. And what happens is, for those at the lowest income brackets, their education erodes. Those systems are no longer able to keep uh, buildings operating. They're no longer able to uh, afford high training for their teachers. They're no longer able to afford books, all of which, of course, we're seeing in our system because of the tax cuts in Ontario. Now, now you mentioned that you're talking about the erosion of the public system in the States. I would su suggest to you it has nothing to do with the, with the proliferation of private options coming up. That's a response to the erosion, and the erosion's going on of its own accord. The people who go to private schools pay extra. They still pay taxes that go to the same public schools as they would have if they had sent their kids there. If anything, the public schools should be getting better because they're pulling their kids out. There's less demand. There's fewer kids crowd in the classroom. And I mean, the economy it, of scale goes down, and you know what that, What economy Bob? of scale? There's still the same taxes are going into the education no, no, system. The Nothing's changed on that end. <laughs> so how do you explain the deterioration of the public school system? I, I, I've, I've already told you, and of course you don't agree with it. The reality is that as you, as you take the decision makers and they no longer have a stake in the provision of public education, same with the provision of public who, who, health care. Who is a decision maker? Well, we all know there are power differentials between us as citizens in terms of influencing government. We're talking about a school. We're talking about there's heavy, student, heavy teacher, lobbying for tax cuts by people who are like you want everything to be privately paid and have the means to do that. What have you to be privately paid. If the government helps somebody with their education, then their education taxes should be to pay back to, to that government what the government paid on their behalf. Not to pay forever on an ever-increasing scale with no end in sight. Like if my education cost the government $10,000, say, during my education lifetime, then my education taxes should stop when I've paid $10,000. Well, you have a At system whatever where rate it's it every comes. single individual for him or herself I don't believe in that kind of a system of community or of government. That's called individual choice. Every individual has a choice. I believe in a, a situation where we have a stake in the well-being of every one of our neighbors. And it is so important and for... And taking away their choice is insulting and demeaning to them. Oh. Okay, don't you think so? No, I do not. So, so I think you are insulting and demeaning to, you, to, to the whole system that we have Explain to me why I should not have the right of choice to send my kids to the school where I would want to send them, or to pay for my own school, or to pay my own doctor, like we argued about two weeks ago. Well, you said I shouldn't be allowed to do that. No, because it erodes the availability of those Aren't services you attacking my to dignity those by telling who are me that? not able What gives you pay? the right to tell me that, though? I would never in my life suggest to you, Marion, that you could not have your social system if you wanted, as long as you didn't force people who I disagreed with it. I can't have my social system unless we're all in it together as a community. Well, what does that tell you? That tells it, you the system is not wanted. This me.com society that you no, see you, as being so important you like, you like is the entirely of opposite to the, the notion of the me.com. I like that, Marion. Give me five. Add a girl. Go. Whoa, the me.com. What, me. what I find remarkable <laughs> is that I see socialism as the, as the selfish system. Because that is the system that demands somebody else pay your own way. Pay, That's a very way. unique way of saying things, seeing things, Bob. To me, is I've never seen that. Selfishness is not keeping, wanting to keep your own money that you earn. Selfishness is wanting to live at someone else's expense. Uh, and that is what socialism is all about. No, it socialism isn't. is about coveting your neighbor's goods, about envying no, your... No, it isn't. It is all about that. Socialism all right. is about pooling 
the resources that we have to make sure that we have the best possible quality of no, life what, for every single citizen. Well, wherever you see a best quality of life, you'll see the people pool their resources in free markets of choice. we got to take a break and find out what good is going on in the world with the <laughs> news. Welcome back here with Dan Gall, along with Marion Boyd and Bob Metz. It's left, right, and center, and we thank you for listening to 1290 CJBK. If uh, you just joined us, we were talking about Jane Stewart and whether she should resign or not, and we've pretty well talked about that. I want to ask you both about this. I, I, I think it is no longer news. I still think she should resign. I don't. I, I know you don't, but and I know, Bob, you don't. I think that somebody's got to be held accountable. If she's incompetent in the job, I don't think we should say, well, you know what, you've made your mistake. Away you go. Keep going. I, I, I don't know. Anyway, I wanted to ask you also about um, the headline today in the free press, Harris rips gas monopoly as London fuel prices soar. I mean, this is just not happening in London. I mean, across all, Canada. All across Canada. Mm -hmm. All across I mean, North America. And was wondering uh, where Harris said yesterday that he feels that there is a virtual monopoly amongst the refiners and maybe we should look at the legislation and how we get better competition. And was wondering what your thoughts were on that. Well, to me, the idea of legislating competition is a contradiction in terms. Um, if you have a monopoly, monopolies are generally in existence because of legislation, because of regulation, because of uh, maybe too much regulation that, that it almost makes it like a monopoly because you have to pass so many tests before you can even enter the field. Um, so to me, the idea of the government legislating competition is a contradiction in terms. What the government has to do is stay out of the way, make sure that the rules of, of the marketplace are obeyed, and leave it at that. And then well, see what the consumer is willing to bear. Well, I mean, it's, it's really hard uh, to deal with this issue. It's a perennial issue. Every time the price goes up at the barrel head, uh, the, the price goes up at the, at the pump. And yes, there are only four major uh, oil refiners in, in the country. Uh, who sell their, their gas around. There are jobbers who, who, who do that. Um, but when there are four major companies that refine and, and distribute, um, I'm, I'm not sure what legislation Mr. Harris would be talking about. If we had only one producer of oil, if Petro-Canada were a nationalized uh, producer and that was the only choice that we had, that would be a monopoly. These guys are saying, and, and, and study after study after study shows, that they, in fact, don't fix prices. And, and, and I don't believe it. I mean, I don't, you, you don't believe what? I don't, I don't believe they don't fix prices. I don't believe there isn't some informal agreement. But we've had studies... So you believe... Uh, sorry, you, you believe that there is? Well, I mean... They, that they are price-fixing. Listen, all sure. prices are fixed. You want to buy something from me? I'm going to get, put a price on it. I fix that price. If you want to sell me your house, you're going to fix a price. You might go up or down on it, but you're going to fix a price. How can... Price fixing is yeah, a, yeah, but, one but, of those but, nonsense. Yeah, but, but what Marion's suggesting is that if you want to go the house uh, analogy, is that every house is going to be sold at $120,000. Mm -hmm. Period. And Period. No, no, and some no people thing. will do that, and it would be perfectly legitimate in certain neighborhoods. You're not supposed to let, you know. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead, Marion. Well, I mean, I mean, I find it very frustrating, too. I think people do. When the, the price of oil goes up on a Saturday uh, in Alberta, uh, that that for the oil companies to put up the price sort of the next day doesn't make any sense because they've already got enough oil to supply us for for two or three months 
So they take the edge on that. You don't see those prices go down the next day when the price at the, at the wellhead goes down. Um, so they always I don't know, is that true? I, I think I've seen them go down a few times and it seems They do go quick. down, but not, not the day after the price goes down. I'm, I'm talking about margins here. If the price goes up, if APEC, for example, puts the price up and people have to pay more at the wellhead, immediately that comes through into our gas prices, even though there's a supply of gasoline that comes through the system. Then when the price goes down at the wellhead, the oil companies explain that, well, they had to pay that much for the, for the gas, yeah, for so the it's going to take two or three months for the price to go down. And, the, and so they get it coming and going. And that mm. I object to. Okay. Let's go to Ray. Ray has a comment this morning. Welcome to the show. You're on the air, Ray. How is everybody doing today? Good. Good. Uh, just I want one quick comment, then my real comment. The quick comment is, is I don't think we should be burning gas in our cars anyway. But, <laughs> well, we shouldn't. Well, and, and I think you're probably right. I, I, I think the more we, we, we begin to look at, at more efficient ways of transportation, the better. You know, I own two vehicles, too. But what I'm saying is we shouldn't be doing it. But, but most importantly, everybody that's listening right now owns PetroCanada. Why can't PetroCanada drop it? Why can't we, as the owners of PetroCanada, drop it 10 cents below, below, below the big boys? The reason we can is because we don't own PetroCanada right. and don't even believe that for a minute. There's no such thing as public ownership. That's a fiction that was... Well, isn't it the government that owns it? No, well, it's, it's only a, about 30% now. Okay, so why doesn't our 30%... Well, I didn't even mean be that. A major, major shareholder in the company say, okay, drop them. Ray, a person who owns something has a, a certificate of ownership. Ownership means you have the right to buy, sell, use, dispose of. Okay. You have none of those rights with respect to anything that the government says you own in common with it. Okay. Now, you, you, but, you can't do that with the roads. You can't do right. that with the parks. You can't do it with Petro-Canada. Okay, but, but the Canadian government does own 30%-ish, uh, uh, whatever. That's my understanding. It's about that. that okay. there, it is on the public. Uh, so, that there were some therefore, we as Canadians, because the government is our government, own... 30%. Now, 30%, I'm, I'm sure, would be a major, major enough shareholder in that corporation to say, let's drop them. But shareholders, you have to remember, I mean, the, 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 those shareholders, us, um, you, you, you have to be competitive in terms of, of, your, of your take or you lose your company. So, I mean, whether it's a government that's the shareholder or individual uh, stockholders who are the shareholders, the, the decisions they make uh, are, are to maintain the strength and the competitiveness of, of the business. But if the company dropped, even say, five cents a liter, cheaper than everybody else, everybody's going to go to Petrocana. I see people lining up for blocks. For and a that's cent, real a competition, cheaper. isn't it? Okay, I see, I see people lining up for blocks for, for two cents a liter. Mm -hmm. You drop it five cents, the only place it's going to get ga gas bought is Petrocanada. It's like buying bulk. They, they're still going to make money. They won't make, uh, say, a dollar, 60, or hold on, I mean, six cents off every liter. They're only going to make two cents off every liter, but they're going to make every two cents off every liter sold. So who's going to make more money? Gotcha. Yeah. What do you think of the argument that Mr. Harris should put his uh, money where his mouth is and, and drop the, uh, the gas tax uh, to, to correspond to the revenue that he gets? In terms, in percentage terms, from a higher gas price. Well, well, unlike a lot of people and a lot of popular opinions, I have full faith, faith in, in Mike Harris. I like the man. He's done a lot of good, and he's got a lot more more to come. He, he took a lot of bad rap because of the liberals, because of their 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 downloading, and their cut their cutbacks, which made him look bad that the public couldn't see. And I think that Mike will, when when push comes to shove, 
he'll do what has to be done because I honestly believe, first of all, he's got his own career in mind, but secondly, he, I feel that he does have the, the Ontario public. So, Ray, you, you, believe, you believe in what you're saying here then is that Mike Harris will drop the taxes on gas? I, th I think if if push comes to shove, yeah, I think I don't I don't think he'll have a problem doing that. Well, I don't I, think he will. I, I think I think that's the logical position he should take. Mm -hmm. He's talking about uh, cutting taxes in every other area. He has an av absolutely foolproof way here because the revenues he would take in, given that it's a percentage on the cost of uh, on the on the sale of the gas, would could remain the same, but the actual tax could could. The percentage could drop, and it would be interesting to see whether he's prepared to put his money. Where his you know, and honestly, it's not something he can just snap his fingers and do. Yes, he I'm can. sure there's uh, like a hundred lawyers that have to look in exactly how it has to be done, because you know somebody down the line's not going to like it and try and do something about it. You, you understand what I mean? It has to be done right. He can't just say, "Oh, that's it, drop him." No, it has to be researched and done properly before he can say, "Okay." Now I'm prepared to do it. Let's do it. Well, well, Everything has to be researched. To me, it seems that the, that the only thing that you are that the government should be entitled to collect at the gas pumps for taxes is the, is the money that it spends on the roads. That's sort of so, sort of getting off the topic here. The topic is the gas prices, and I agree with you. Okay, I, I do. Don't don't get me wrong. But if we're going to focus on the price of gas prices, and we're going to focus on the taxes that could or could not be dropped by Mike Harris and our Ontario government, mm -hmm. then let let let's let's keep the focus on what what we're talking about. Not, let's not try and get off on all kinds of other avenues because you could be battling this for days. Mm -hmm. But if we keep the focus on what it needs to be done. It can be done through Petro Canada. It can if there's 30 percent shareholders. Now, 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 Ray, just to go back to your example of why Petro Canada, uh, you know, why don't they lower the price by a nickel or something like that, and then they would make more money, you say, by the increased volume. Right. I think they they're they're well aware of that principle, and I think that they would would have applied it if it applied in this case. I don't think it does when you're talking about a commodity that only has a three-month world supply. Because suppose they went and did what you said, and then they sold it at a cheaper price. The other guys would follow suit. They'd have no choice. Uh, well, they might, but I doubt it because, They'd you know, to. there's a cost of processing involved. And what, what yeah. they do is restrict the supply, and the supply, go, supply goes down, the price has to go up. That's the only thing governing the prices out there. And the demand on our oil resources and gasoline is going up. And by the way, gas is still the most efficient energy source that we use. I know there's people talking about going to, to electricity and batteries and wind power. If I had my way, we'd be on horses. But well, anyway. that, that, that would be one of the worst, because the pollution from horses in a, in a, the in a city would, be, would, get a bit much. would kill you. <laughs> I think right. they once did a study of what would happen to New York City if they still had horses. Ray, thanks for your call. Have a good day. Some okay, interesting you, points, and we thank you for them. Herman, welcome to the show. Herman? Yes, sir. You're on the air. Okay. Um, I'm just, I just couldn't find it right now, but the article, uh, Marion just mentioned that it's a percentage of the price. I do not think it's a percentage of the price. Ontario charges whatever, 14 cents a liter. The federal government charges 10 cents a liter plus GST. It is not, doesn't rise. The only thing that rises is GST, as I understand it. It's well, not a percentage of... As I understand it, the GST and PST are added to everything, too, aren't they? It, right. it didn't say PST on the article I was reading. Oh. Uh but anyway, uh, yeah, I'm 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 in favor of us Petrocan owners dropping the price and doing that thing at that time, uh, and and getting the other companies to drop with us. Well, yeah. Are you a Petrocan shareholder? 
Uh, no, uh, well, yeah, because I'm part of a taxpaying team of Canadians. Well, how, how, are, how are you going to let PetroCan know what you want? That's the problem. How are you going to, well, that, that means you're not a shareholder. Well, I guess that's true. Don't fool yourself, standpoint. Herman. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a trick, that, you know, this public ownership nonsense. From that from that <laughs> standpoint, I guess you're right. They don't have, never have invited me to a meeting. I only got no. about 16 General Motors shares, and they always invite me to a meeting. <laughs> there you well, go. There you go. <laughs> that makes all the difference. <laughs> Darn right. The other thing is competition. British Columbia, I think, right now is selling gas at 48 because they had a new processor move into the province, and I think they're selling at 48. That's the lowest province rate at the moment. Is that right? I heard uh, this morning, I think I heard that Newfoundland pays 78 cents a liter. That's right. And in the north, of course, the, the, the price of gas that we're paying now is the regular part of ga uh, price of gas up in the north because the added transportation costs. Mm. Right. And the other problem I have uh, is... W sort of a, a government-related, and I don't know how to... Because the price of gold is going down, and the picture-framing business, if you use gold frames, should come down in price. It costs $25,000 to hang Frank Miller's portrait and Mr. Peterson's portrait in Toronto. If you prorate Frank Miller on a per-day service for $25,000 to hang his portrait, it would be a horrendous figure. And David Peterson's probably better, but not much. Well, considerably, because Mr. Uh, Miller was only the uh, premier for six about months. six months, yeah. and David Peterson was for five years. So, yeah, it'd be quite a big difference. But, uh, but uh, it's still, I, I think it's a horrendous amount of money to spend hanging somebody's picture in, in there. Uh, and, and it seems like we, we get sort of excited when we talk about millions of dollars NHL players makes or a billion dollars at Stuart Blue. Uh, but when we're looking at 25000 here and 25000 there, they all add up to millions. We never get too terribly excited about it. Good point, Herman. Thanks for your call. And that's something else that I can't even comprehend when you you say the word a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. I mean, million, you, you used to throw around million, I still couldn't comprehend it. But now we're talking billions of dollars. Well, you know, and it's funny that it added up to that because I, I would recall over my 20 years of, of in politics and talking to everyone who has a new scheme or a new way to spend government money, whether it's the art gallery, whether it's Theatre London, whether it's this or that, it's only going to cost you six cents a year. It's only going to cost you a dime a year. It's only going to cost you a quarter a year. For, the, for only 20 cents a year, we're going to have this facility for only $3 a year. We're going to have this wonderful health care system. All of a sudden, your property taxes are as big as your mortgage. Your income taxes are more than half of what you make in your lifetime. And people are still telling you that you shouldn't be complaining about nickels and dimes. Yeah. Mel, welcome to the show. You're on the air. Uh, yeah, um, I'm going to ask one question, and, and I'll hang up and let you guys answer it, because I'm enjoying this show this morning. <laughs> I, I'd like to know what happened at, uh, say, a little price of uh, 59.5. They get a whole load of gas and everything else. Two days later, the price goes up. Now, did they same buy gas that in the gas tank. at a lower price? And now they're getting more revenue by upping the price on That's the right. old gas that they paid uh, the one price for. You're right. Yeah, but they have to pay more in the future again. Yeah, but you then know, they good. don't lower it. They say that they say they have to keep that tank of gas. At they're the under no obligation. They're they're under their obligation is to make money, and they're going to maximize their profits. That's all they have to do. And if you're worried about a lag on one end of the scale or the other, I don't think that. But it's a lag on both. That's the problem. Well, 
to, to hopefully the con- to the, to the advantage consumer's of, disadvantage. Well, or to, to the advantage of the producer, which is not a bad thing. I mean, if we have producers who are doing well in the country, they'll continue to produce, and we want them to produce because that's the thing that's going to bring the prices down, is getting more producers out there. You know, I talk to a lot of old folks that uh, were around, you know, turn of the century and stuff. You know, people used to start their own oil wells. You could go around the Sarnia area here. People would just have a field and mm. put a, I don't know what you call those pumps that would get the thing out of the ground and, and then network that way. Like when we became this big oil monopoly is a relatively recent phenomenon. But with the world demand, you have to have huge, huge companies who invest but, billions of dollars but, but, in technology. But, but, but just hang on a minute, Bob. I mean, you know that when that was going on, we didn't have the kind of motors that we have now. We didn't have to have as highly refined gasoline. Exactly, I just so said on. that. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's not just the world, the world monopoly kind of thing. But I, mean, I would technologically suggest that... Technologically, more that, and more. But legally, people like that wouldn't be able to do it that easily anymore, and I think they should. But, you know, we're seeing a revolution back in energy that way. they couldn't, because they couldn't refine it, so there wouldn't be any point in doing it, is my point. Uh, well, the, the the reason I ask that question is mm-hmm. that you, that you hear you hear the prices going up up and down at the uh, oil heads. Yes. Okay, I agree with that. But I go back to my original question: If they bought that oil at fifty nine nine, why do they have to put the price up I'm to sixty five five when they've got full tanks in their gas station bought at the lower price? That's right. And that and you can you can believe that if the price goes down. One day at the at the wellhead, yeah. you will not see your price go down that day or the next day because they will tell no. you they paid more for the tank of gas that's already there, and they're going to keep on charging the higher price until they replace that with, uh, with you lower know, price. Let, let me ask you a question, Mel. Yes. Suppose you're the operator of the gas station or gas bar, mm-hmm. and uh, your price is fifty nine five, and then you see you know everybody else around you pay, charging sixty five and still getting business. You're going to leave your price there. Oh, I'm going to leave my price at uh, I'm going to leave my price at 59 if I, you know, if I'm the operator and I can do whatever I want. Which, which quote, the name brand gas stations can't. Petrocan, Sunoco, uh, Esso can't because they're ordered by the company to put it up, even well, though they bought the gas. Their contract with the company requires them to pay the company price. That's exactly. But if 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 I own. Personally, my own gas station. I just got a load of gas in it, uh, and and I can sell it for fifty nine nine. I'm going to keep it there until I have to buy my next load of gas. Then I'm going to pay the higher price. Then I'm going to have to up it. Sunoco did something about three years ago. They put prices down. Uh, ten years previous to what they were. Ten years previous. You couldn't even get into any Sunoco in the city. Oh, you couldn't that. even I remember get that. into them. I always go to Sunoco, and I don't remember that myself. Well, I do. I mm. do. I couldn't even get into it. And I had some inside information on when it was going to go on sale. And I couldn't even get into the cell serve. Well, we, we all pass because we don't know anything about that particular yeah, see, occasion. I, I think the basic issue here is that Consumers and producers are always at odds with each other. What they're doing is negotiating in the marketplace. And what the producer is doing is offering a price. If the consumer is willing to pay and it keeps the producer in business, that's what the price is going to be. It's as simple as that. And 
it's natural for the producer to want more for what he does. That's normal. We all do. We all want more money for what we make. And it's natural for the consumer to want to pay less. And we have to allow both of these forces to operate freely in the marketplace. That's how we arrive at prices. The problem that... At real prices. The, the problem that I see with that, though, is that we have... If, if Marion is right, and I suspect that you are, that there is some price fixing going on, even though the task force can't unveil it. Nobody's been able to prove that. Well, but, you're always gonna, it's but always going to look like price fixing because, because you know, there's that old man. Okay, let me, let me, let me, here's an example, and, and help me with this. One day, I can leave London and pay 60 cents a liter. The next morning, driving on a little bit of gas, thinking I'll go to London and pay 60 cents a liter, every station in London is 68 cents a liter. Does that not sound like price fixing to you? Does that not sound like something is going on here that we, there's no advance notice? Well, the price went up. There's no... Yeah, but thanks for letting us know. Well, they did let you know. They let you know when the price went up and they changed it. At, you know, at 68 cents a liter. Well, and everybody's got the same price. Right. I just filled up my most expensive tank yesterday. I couldn't believe what Ryan said he paid for his tank. Was that for real? He was for seventy dollars. Why would Ryan lie? Ryan must have a big tank. <laughs> He's got a big tank, all right. Anyway, I mean, I, you look at that, and that's why I, it would appear to me it's suspect. It's all suspect. Well, yeah, it always looks suspect, and and you know, I'll tell you on the on the consumer side, it, it can look suspect too because we all want lower prices. And we, the, the like, what is a fair price? How do you know what the fair price the, is? The other aspect we haven't even talked about here is is the international cartel, the the apex mm. situation, where they uh, are very powerful in terms of they set the price at the at the wellhead, and 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 it affects the 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 price all over because of of their conglomerate. Uh, and and their 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 you know mm -hmm. uh, agreement their their worldwide agreement. But whenever they do something like that, what they're to, doing to 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 restrict to to, to raise their profits uh, yes. by restricting the flow of gas. But what they do is encourage competition then, because other people will come into the field and and other oil fields that might not have been economical to produce from suddenly become so. Time flies. Mm -hmm. It's it sure for does. Left, Right, and Center. Bob Metz and Marion Boyd, we thank you for joining us nice to see you. this Thanks, morning. Dan. Yeah, And uh, hope to see you again. That's it for Left, Right, and Center. I'm Dan Gall on behalf of Jim Chapman. Stay tuned. It is Ask the Experts with Chris Cahill of Financial Strategies Group next on 1290 CJBK.